Welcome back, Warriors. Quay, Neen Deluisi, Pam Palmiter, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island talk about indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. And don't forget, there are many free ways to help support this podcast. You can like it, you can give it five stars on your podcast app, or share it on your social media. All of these ways to help this podcast means so much to me, and it helps get my podcast out there to many other people. Today's podcast is another special one. It's a follow-up from our last conversation with Dr. Cindy Blackstock about what is happening with compensation for First Nation kids and families harmed by the foster care system. So you don't want to miss this episode. Welcome back to a new season of the Warrior Life podcast. Today's podcast is a part two on what's happening with the compensation that is supposed to be going to First Nations children and families who were harmed by the racially discriminatory foster care system. It's been years since the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal made the compensation order for Canada to have to compensate First Nation kids and Canada has resisted paying out ever since. In our last YouTube Live session, which I posted as a podcast several days later, we focused on the recent Canadian Human Rights Tribunal letter decision telling Canada and the AFN to amend their settlement agreement so that no First Nation kids who are supposed to be compensated get left behind in the settlement agreement. Our worry at the time was that Canada or even the Assembly of First Nations would use litigation to force their settlement agreement to go ahead and leave thousands of First Nations children behind. Well, that's exactly what happened, and you all had lots of questions about what all that could mean for these First Nation kids and families. We asked for your questions ahead of time, and wow, there were a ton of questions. So, we had another live Q&A session on YouTube, and we answered every question that we received. Today's podcast is the first part of that session. If you want to hear the extended version, just head to my YouTube channel and check it out. I'll post the links below. Good afternoon. Quay, Ninda Luisi, Pam Palmiter. I am a Mi'kmaq lawyer, professor, author, content creator, and public educator. I'm from Iorhubar First Nation, but today I'm coming to you from the sovereign territories of Mississaugas of Scugog. And this YouTube Live, you could be coming to it from a wide variety of Indigenous territories. The focus of my work is public education on Indigenous issues with a view to inspiring Canadians to stand beside us in solidarity and demand justice for First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples from governments at all levels. Joining me again today, as you can see her here, is my friend, Dr. Cindy Blackstock. She's from the Gixan First Nation, and she's going to help answer all of your questions, as many as we can anyway, uh, about the latest legal developments in the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal decision compensation order to pay all of the impacted First Nation kids and families that were so wrongfully harmed by the discriminatory Child and Family Services foster care system. As you know, Cindy is the head of the First Nation Child and Family Caring Society, and she's also a prof in the School of Social Work at McGill. And of course, we know it's not just Cindy. We've got Spirit Bear, her team at the First Nations uh, Caring Society, all the amazing lawyers who've done so much work, all of the kids who've been a part of this, and of course, our allies who've been standing in solidarity with First Nation kids to help win the case at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me again on this live YouTube event. Oh, thank you, Pam. And, you know, I just want to remind all your listeners that on December 12th, a very special day is coming up. 
and that is going to be the uh, 15th anniversary of the House of Commons adopting Jordan's principle in memory and honour of Jordan River Anderson. So hoping we can all kind of mark that day on our calendar and uh, do a special ceremony or prayer, whatever is in your keeping with your uh, culture and your traditions, to honour this little boy and the spirit of giving and generosity that has changed tens of thousands of children's lives so important and I know one thing you always say is always remember to say his name Jordan River Anderson don't abbreviate it always acknowledge this important contribution that he made and he isn't here today to have the benefit of it so he's he's a very special little boy and I noticed that the last time we had this live Q&A session we didn't have Spirit Bear with us, but we have Spirit Bear with us today. So what's he up to? He's back. Well, I think last time he was actually on a home visit back to his nation at Carrier Secondy. Oh. And uh, so he was hanging out with some of the beautiful children, young people and the elders and community members there. And they thought, well, he needs to have something from his home territory. So let me show off his new dad's here that he has. Because uh, he's going to the Supreme Court next week, Pam. So he had to have something that was pretty big. <laughs> and now look at this beautiful moose-hide vest here, you know, that he now is sporting. That's so, amazing. Yeah. So why is he off to the Supreme Court? What's he up to? Well, um, you're, it's going to be a busy week next week. Uh, we have the government of Quebec challenging the constitutionality of the act respecting First Nations, Métis and Inuit children, youth and families. The short form is C92 because that mm -hmm. title is a mouthful, but it really is about challenging uh, the jurisdiction of First Nations, Métis and Inuit governments uh, to on child and family services. It's really disappointing to see this happening again. Uh, there are other governments aligned with the province of Quebec on this. And so the hearings will be next week in the Supreme Court of Canada and Spirit Bear will be there to represent all the children. And be a witness. It's so important that the kids see what's happening. So hopefully all of that will be available for us to see online do you know yeah, people will be able to watch it online so you can go right onto the supreme court website and you can watch uh yourself and i really encourage people to do it and you know pam you know a lot more about the law than i do but people will remember uh that there were used historical uh legal cases where you would have canada and a province uh, fighting over First Nations rights. Well, this is the same thing. And we're actually, the, the role that First Nations can uh, play in this thing is really intervener status, even though this is about our kids. So for that alone, it's really kind of mm. odd. Uh, but we all have to hope that the Supreme Court does the right thing and affirms the rights of First Nations, Métis and Inuit governments to look after their children. Well, let's hope so. And for all of you out there, make sure you watch and be witness to what's happening, yeah. which is kind of your motto, you know, be a witness to what's happening so that you don't have to listen to political rhetoric or hear how the media reports it. You get to hear and see for yourself what's going on. And let your premier know and your prime minister yes. know uh, about what your views are. Uh, don't underestimate the power of your voice mm -hmm. uh, in these things. You know, um, I really encourage community members and allies to get out there and say that, look, uh, we never gave away our jurisdiction to look after our kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're not interested in having you take it away again after <laughs> residential schools and everything else. Or even the current foster care system, like, my goodness, have they not done enough damage, honestly? So, yeah, let's make sure we watch that. And Cindy, I also have to say congratulations to you being a gold medal winner. As soon as I saw that, I was like, was she in the Olympics somewhere? <laughs> the Research Olympics, because you won the Shirk Gold Medal Award for doing such phenomenal research and knowledge dissemination that has a real impact basically identifying systemic inequalities against First Nation kids, but also taking concrete steps with that research to remediate it and find solutions. And I think that's the most important part. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. It's a collective effort, right? And I really look at this as also, I think at this time when the headlines have been so much on kind of the pretend Indian things, I'm hoping it really validates the amazing work that's being done out there by First Nations, Métis, Inuit uh, scholars and academics across the country. Mm -hmm. There are people out there who are authentic community members who are doing this important work. And uh, I just really want to honour them and uh, honour all the children. So this was uh, this was a good opportunity to do that. 
Oh, that that is good because the more we can rally around our authentic members and family members and kin, I think that's so important. And this is a way to do that. So good on them for picking you in a where it belongs, right? Yes, yes, exactly. right? <laughs> oh my goodness. And people are saying in the comments, of course, congratulations. And you know, you're always so good about acknowledging everybody else who's a part of it because all of this work takes a team. And it takes all the people who support us. So thank you always for putting so much time and energy into everything you do and then taking the time to come on here and do a live event on a Friday of all days. Oh, <laughs> you know, and, like the last live event we had, Pam, the questions yeah. in the community were so good. And I am just, uh, I really feel honored that community is is, uh, is feeling comfortable yeah. enough, but coming into these spaces and asking these really important questions. Yeah, I, I think so too. And what I love about the questions is there's no like political rhetoric in it. There's no like personal opinions. It's just, hey, is it this or this? Yeah. What happened? When did it happen? What will be the impact? Like straightforward questions that we all want the answers to. And we yeah. can't answer them all if we don't know the answer, but we try very hard. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to try and uh, be, uh, and we'll actually refer people. I'm a real big believer, just like we're talking about with Supreme Court, is, um, you know, here's what I know. And here's how I know it. Mm -hmm. Right, like to show people the documents mm -hmm. and that kind of thing so that they can read them for themselves there, they can watch the hearings on their own and make up their mm -hmm. own minds about it. So and that's so important in today's day and age. And we're going to look at a couple of documents later once we get into the questions. But in the today's day and age of online misinformation, or hate news or fake news or all of these other things. It's so important that when we say something like a statistic, here's where I got that statistic yeah. from, or here's the document, read it yourself. And maybe you'll agree with my analysis or maybe you won't, yeah. but it's always being based on fact. And that's, that's what I pride myself in all of these lives or any of the things we do. It's always fact-based. We don't have to agree, but at least we have the facts. That's right. And I mean, that's such a founding principle of all of our cultures, right, is that truth is one of those teachings that's really at the basis of it. Mm -hmm. And it, and the reason it's there is we really want to make sure that we're, uh, we're doing things in a good way, right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of it is, uh, it's not about being right. It's not about any of these other things, especially when it comes to kids. Mm -hmm. I want to give community members the best information so they can make the best choices for their children. Exactly. And just for everyone who's watching, I think it's important to know what's happening, you know, around us. You know, we talked about Jordan River Anderson, but we also have the independent special uh, interlocutor for missing children and unmarked graves and burial sites going around the country, meeting with communities, hearing from survivors about what they need to address uh, the, the, these children to identify the children, to possibly bring them home, or to or to have protective measures there? What kind of laws and supports do we need to support them? So for anyone who wants to be involved in that, if you just go to their website, and I'll put it in the link below this video too, in case you don't know exactly where to go, but it tells you when they're having these meetings and how you can participate. And that's so important because I, I think about Cindy, you know, you've got these children in unmarked graves from Indian residential schools, Indian day schools, Indian hospitals, youth reformatories, like all of these things. You have just recently uh, a man was arrested under suspicion of being the latest serial killer of just Indigenous women and girls. I mean, in Manitoba, unbelievable. We've got the incarceration rates of Indigenous women and little girls in, in youth corrections continuing to skyrocket. And I can't help but think that with forced sterilizations and everything else that this is all related. So this issue that we're talking about right now about foster care, it's very much related to all of these other things, isn't it? It is uh, related to it. Um, it is about kind of at its essence is the dehumanization of uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit, women, girls and families writ large and persons writ large. And it's uh, from that, from that dehumanization that really is a bedrock of colonization saying that we're the savages, everything else is civilized, then that legitimizes a lot of this wrongdoing. Um, and it also allows for the normalization of the wrongdoing in the Canadian public. And that's part of what we've been trying to do with Spirit Bear is get out there and teach kids that, that it's not normal that First Nations children don't have clean drinking water. It's not normal that Inuit children are facing TB rates that are 
tens and tens of times higher than everybody else. None of that is normal and it's all preventable. We just got to make different choices and expect different choices from our leadership to do it. So this work is so, so important. I know. I think it at the very end of all of it, you know, there's lots of complex issues and history and what's happening currently in politics and law. But at the very core of it, all of these issues are if the very basic human rights mm. of all of Indigenous peoples, especially children, were being implemented and protected and they could enjoy those human rights, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Huh. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why you brought the case to yeah. the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal to say, hey, listen, the basic human rights of these First Nation kids impacted by foster care, this they're not being protected and they're being racially discriminated against. And we need to stop that and also compensate them for the harms. I mean, you can never compensate no. There's, there's would never be enough billions and trillions of dollars to compensate for the harms that have happened. But for what is out there, they should be compensated something for what's happened. And I think that's why we're having this conversation today. We're keeping people updated yeah. on what's happening. So the last time we talked, we were talking about the settlement agreement between Canada and the Assembly of First Nations, the AFN, and what some of the good of it was, what some of the concerns were. And at the time, we weren't sure what, what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal would think of it because we had some concerns because some kids would be left out. They would have been granted this award by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, but under the settlement agreement, some of them would be denied that compensation. So we thought, you know, that's not fair. Every child matters, so it should be every child matters. And that that's something that could be amended. And we weren't sure at the time what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal was going to say. Well, since then, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal has issued this letter and uh, saying they, they agree. They don't want, you know, these kids to be left out and this settlement agreement could be a could be amended. But if we could just have like a little tiny chronology, Cindy, of, you know, just in case there's people who are watching, we can't go into the details of it, but where did this decision come from? And what have been some of the key steps that are leading us up to this uh, letter decision? So one of the things for your people to understand is that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal has the authority under the Act, uh, the Canadian Human Rights Act, to award compensation to victims that experience discrimination firsthand. And the most they can award is $40,000, but they can go back a year before the complaint was filed. So that, in, in our case, is 2006. When they looked at Canada's conduct um, and the results of that conduct for children, which was separating children from their families, um, creating harms for kids, and in sad, some cases, sadly, contributing to the deaths of kids, they called it a worst case scenario. And so they uh, awarded all eligible victims $40,000. Uh, Canada then appealed that and it went to the Federal Court of Appeal. And in January of last year, or pardon me, uh, in September of, of 2021, the Federal Court said, these are good orders, Canada, you have to pay these victims the money. So that happened. And uh, I need to just recognize the Assembly of First Nations as a part of this process and was going through that process. But then on the side, uh, the federal government started to announce that well, we've got these class actions and some of them include the same group of people who are eligible now for this $40,000. So we're going to uh, bring these people from the CHRT over to the class action, try to include them in that in, with the eye of giving them more money. Now, if that's what happened, that would be great. Um, so the class action people, the Musham class action group, the Assembly of First Nations Canada, they go off and they create this final settlement agreement. And as we talked about in our last episode, there's lots in there that's really good. Uh, one is that some people will uh, get more than $40,000 under the CHRT. And it includes more people going back to 1991. All of that is positive. Um, but the problematic parts are that uh, it would also have the effect of actually disentitling some of the victims. Um, and the reason that happened is there was a clause in that final settlement agreement on the class action that said, in order for this thing to go through, we, the Class Action Council in Canada, are going to go back to the tribunal and say to the tribunal, uh, we want you to replace your orders with our, our final settlement agreement. So uh, 
what that would have meant is that uh, some children in care would go from $40,000 down to nothing. Others, uh, the parental estates would go down from $40,000 down to nothing. Others would see their entitlements reduced. And for the Jordan's principal group, it was uncertain what their entitlements were. So uh, when the tribunal was met with this motion, um, they they asked a lot of questions. Uh, but in the end of the day, they said, we're in the business of affirming human rights. Uh, we can't, when we see someone has suffered and we award damages for that suffering, that's a final order from us. We can't, we could, we could go back and kind of make things better for that person, maybe mm-hmm. clarify an order so that things are better if there's something we missed. Uh, but we can't take away that right once it's granted. And that's really what the tribunal said. And they recommended uh, back to the uh, class action folks, look, you can fix this. Uh, you can get rid of that condition that says you want to replace our orders. You could put more money in there to make sure everybody's fairly compensated mm-hmm. in Canada. Uh, there's a real pathway to success in that. And the tribunal recognized, like we did, there's many good things in there, but mm-hmm. we can't we can't just, our concepts of justice cannot be that we literally take money away from children in care and leave them behind. They've had enough taken away from them, yeah. to be honest. And I think that was one of the big misunderstandings was that this de- letter decision was about just destroying the settlement agreement and that Cindy and the Human Rights Tribunal, they were just totally opposed to the settlement agreement. And that wasn't the case at all. It's like, look at all the great things in the settlement agreement. You just have to make this amendment so that some kids don't have their compensation taken away from them. And it would seem to me pretty simple. Am I missing something? I think it's pretty simple, um, you know, and I think it's also a great opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Because we're talking about self-determination. We started the show with talking about self-determination. And, mm-hmm. and when I hear First Nations talk about that, it really is uh, making sure that we don't repeat the pa- mistakes of the past yeah. of, the cl- of the colonial governments and kind of leave kids uh, behind for whatever reason it is. Yeah. Uh, we got to make sure that every kid uh, is in our canoe because every single one of them is sacred. And so we have an opportunity to do that right now. I- I'd like to kind of get to work and do that. I see all kinds of possibilities of getting mm-hmm. this thing done. Well, and, and it's good work to be doing it. It's long overdue work. There's lots of people that have been working on it. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and I think we might have talked about this in our last session, but didn't the federal government also say, don't worry, you know, we're, we want to make sure that no kid gets less than 40, that this is about making sure kids get more than 40,000, because some of them might have had more, more harm. And you and I, I think we're thinking, well, that's great. But that's not really what this, what this is all about. They're not arguing to give more, they're they're arguing that some of them would actually get less. And that just doesn't seem consistent with what they were saying. No, I mean, that was my understanding too. But I I guess by now I'm a bit skeptical. I always look for the fine print, right? (laughs) Um, And when we looked at the fine print, we saw that there were lies that were going to be impacted in in a very negative way. And we wanted to make sure that we spoke up about that and let people yeah. know. Because those those legal documents, like Pam, I think that final settlement agreement is four to 500 pages. I mean, nobody other than us have the time to plow through all that. And, uh, you know, and 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 so we, we felt we had to raise it before the tribunal and the tribunal issued its letter decision. And by the way, here's one of those documents you can read for yourself. And unlike uh, the decision with reasons, which uh, Pam knows she's a lawyer, that's going to be the more detailed legal mumbo yeah. that will back up what they say. That's to come later. But this one I find is pretty readable. And yeah. uh, you can go on to the tribunal website or onto our website, FN Witness, and read it for yourself. And uh, you're welcome to share it with everybody. It's a public mm-hmm. So here it is, just uh, so you know, the First Nation Caring Society website, it has a ton of information and they always post legal documents as soon as they get them or they uh, post facts and stats or information sheets. And so you've got here, you know, the tribunal letter decision, you've got it all right there, what the Caring Society statement was, their briefing and the letter decision. And Cindy and I were talking about this the fact that we have access to documents in ways that we haven't had before, which is great because you and I can have a conversation about what we think is good or not good yeah. about that decision. 
but it's helpful when people can read it and see the wording for themselves and say, yeah, I agree with what they're saying, or you know what, I don't quite read it that way. It's when you see the words on paper, it's it's so much more impactful than just political rhetoric by politicians or sometimes media get it wrong. I know the media tries hard, but sometimes they misunderstand what these cases are saying. Yeah, and this one has been going on for such a long time. It's, yeah. uh, even for me, uh, sometimes I get lost in the paperwork. So it's always really good to read it for yourself and to encourage others in your circle to read it. It's only 14 pages. It's not uh, not a huge document. The letter is Cindy, before I get into the questions, because there's so many good questions from community members, and don't forget, you can still, you know, put your questions in the comment section, and we'll get to as many as we can. Um, once that letter decision came out, a lot of people were celebrating, saying, yay, our compensation won't be taken away from us. And of course, mm -hmm. you and I were celebrating, human rights people were celebrating, but it, Canada and the Assembly of First Nations weren't as happy about the decision. And... We were a little bit worried at the time what that would mean. Were they just frustrated because the settlement didn't go through or that they'd have to make amendments? Or would they actually take the next step and do a judicial review of that decision and try to get it overturned? And I think most of us were hoping that wouldn't be the case, but it looks like that is the case because correct me if I'm wrong, but they've both filed judicial reviews, Canada and also the Assembly of First Nations. Yeah, my hope was that Canada would uh, just pay the money that it owes and give the supports to the victims. Like we can't forget about those supports, Pam. So important, community members know this, right? To make sure that that stuff's in place and and get it done. Like there's, I, I don't know how many court orders Canada needs to actually fulfill its obligations, but so far on compensation, we have two tribunal orders and a federal court order. So like, just do the right thing, right? That was certainly my hope. And I was really disappointed when Canada filed for judicial review. Uh, the Assembly of First Nations has also filed for judicial review. Those notices are on the website, so you can read them for yourself again um, and take a look um, to see what the grounds are. And they're kind of legal beagle things. And so it's called a notice of application <laughs> for judicial review, which, it's kind of like an appeal, like judicial mm -hmm. review. When I read it, I'm not a lawyer. I kind of think appeal. That's what it means. And you got to file to federal court if you're going to appeal a tribunal decision. Yeah. So this is what this is what it looks like. And this is the Attorney General of Canada's one, right, Pam? Yep. And then this one is the Assembly of First Nations Judicial Review. So we have these up here. And what I will do is because uh, there's some questions here that are asking what's in the what does the judicial review mean and things like that. So we'll refer to these as we're talking back and forth, uh, because I think it's important, again, like I said, to actually see the word like we did last time when we said that there was First Nations passing resolutions against the settlement agreement because they didn't have free prior and informed consent and because it wasn't representing a minimum of $40,000 compensation per kid. So there was some First Nations saying, hey, you can't sign this without us. So that's, a, that's another issue related to this. But let's get into some of the questions from the community members, because I think it's, they always ask the best questions, you know? They do. Um, and I will say one of the things about these documents, and Pam, you can correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but they're kind of almost like an outline of what you're eventually yeah. going to say in the court case. So yeah. there's a lot of pieces in there that uh, we don't know mm -hmm. uh, and we'll only know um, oh, uh, as the coming weeks and months come forward and that they clarify their positions more and we see the actual submissions that are made to the federal court. Exactly. It's kind of like the bare minimum they need yeah. to put into a notice and then you find out more after. It gives you kind of an inkling but it could yeah. be far more complex or include a lot more things. Now, exactly. speaking of which, when is this going to, do you guys have a, a date yet when you have to respond to these judicial reviews? No, we've been assigned a case management judge, which is actually okay. Justice Fable, the same Justice uh, Oh, wow. The first time. So I'm very happy with that because he's got a lot of the background in the history on this yeah. case. Um, so that's positive. Um, the question of whether, when it will take that next major step forward is still up in the air. Um, we know the letter, the, the letter decision is out, but the reasons are not out. And uh, there may be uh, Canada and the AFN may want to see the reasons for the decisions to get more clarity from the tribunal about what and why it said what it said. 
and how why it decided why the way it did mm -hmm. uh, before they kind of then put in their submissions about the appeal or uh, decide whether they're going to take that appeal further. Okay. Well, and that's good information, you know, for people to understand this letter decision. There's another part that comes. There's the probably much longer, more detailed reasons that'll happen. And then where it's so uh, a potential court date is pending. I mean, they could always both pull out Canada and the AFN could say, never mind, let's just go and amend the agreement. So there's always that opportunity too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there always is. Okay. Well, let's start with Peter. Okay. Um, he wants to know if it's possible that a judicial review could undo the compensation order. And the reason why he's asking is he says he knows lots of families in his particular community that will be impacted if they don't get the compensation order. Yeah, well, Peter's asking a really important question. And one of the things we haven't talked about, Pam, is Canada is often litigating on multiple fronts. And sadly, that's a case in this one, too. And it challenged Justice Fable's orders from the federal court uh, to the federal court of appeal. It's kind of sitting up there. Mm. And that judicial review is to quash all the compensation from the tribunal. Um, I uh, I think it's clear that uh, the First Nations parties won't be up for that, that we will be challenging that. Mm -hmm. um, but that still is up there as a looming dark cloud. Um, and then we have uh, this particular matter. Um, for the best that I can see, and Pam, like you're a lawyer, so some of these questions are way above my, my knowledge level. Uh, but I think what they're asking for is uh, around the final settlement agreement. Would that comp that decision by the tribunal to say, we couldn't replace our orders with your final settlement agreement, that that decision be quashed and returned back to a different mm. panel for a decision. That's kind of what I'm taking out yeah. of it. So I don't think the compensation goes away. Canada still has its obligations um, under this uh, judicial review, but it may be that those, depending on what these two parties do, it may uh, still uh, have that that unint unintended and unfortunate effect of, of disentitling some of these kids if it went forward. I'm so glad you brought that up, that there's that federal court of appeal oh, decision that's literally hanging over, brooding over all of this, almost like, you know, this undue stress that says, oh, if we don't agree to something, you know, Canada's going to go and appeal it. And it feels like we're always in that yeah. position. Like, like that can't be what reconciliation looks no. like, you know, and especially after they've harmed these kids. And, and let's keep in mind that half of these uh, folks uh, getting compensation are still children. You know, Canada needs to take away these protections for itself, these threats, this dark cloud that hangs over top of them. I'd like to see them uh, immediately withdraw those reviews. And and mm -hmm. I really encourage community members who feel the same way to let their voice be heard uh, to uh, the government yeah. of Canada. Yeah, exactly. Because there are First Nations across the country that are sending in resolutions and letters and yeah. calling both Canada and the AFN, saying what their um, concerns are. And I think that's important. Yeah. So just very quickly, if you want to know exactly what Canada is asking for, they want the court to set aside the tribunal's, I guess, refusal to amend the compensation order it gave to comply with the settlement agreement. They want um, uh, an order setting aside the decision of the 2016 decision, which I'm like, wait a second, aren't you digging back a little bit? I thought you were just talking about this most recent one. So it starts to get very confusing. And of course, um, uh, setting aside the tribunal's decision that the parties to a negotiated settlement cannot negotiate terms if they don't, I guess, include or mirror the compensation order of the tribunal. So there's a lot of potential issues here. And I know not everybody is a lawyer who's listening to this, but even if you set aside the particulars of this case, it could set some precedents for other cases. Like what happens when people win compensation in other courts or in other tribunals for other things? Does that mean a third party gets to come in and say, no, we're going to make a settlement on your behalf and it's going to be less than your compensation order? You know, those are the kind of questions that we're talking about. And I should have said at the beginning, 
Cindy and I aren't providing political advice, legal advice, health advice, medical advice, <laughs> personal advice, or any kind of advice. What we're doing is we're making with the best of our knowledge and experience and the way we're reading this, what we think are some potential concerns, but there's a lot of lawyers involved here so they can do the legal advice, but we just wanted people to see what some of the, the wording was for the judicial review. Now that's just Canada's. Uh, yes, it was Peter who asked that question. Now here is the AFN's application and they want obviously an order setting aside that decision of the tribunal um, or if that doesn't happen, they want an entirely different panel of tribunal members to consider the case. So basically, we don't like your decision, so we want someone else to look at it. Um, and they also want costs uh, against, I guess that would be the tribunal and the caring society. And then they go out and, and list some of their uh, some of their reasons, but they don't have to be too detailed, like they said. So th that's the best. It's hard to guess in these scenarios, yeah, Peter, uh, about what could or couldn't happen, but it probably wouldn't lead to a good place if the judicial review did overturn this decision. And I, and I think one of the things that um, we've all collectively contributed to is a lot of public awareness. The public uh, mm -hmm. really is pressing Canada. They, they, they're embarrassed that Canada is not paying this compensation. Uh, I don't see a world, frankly, where Canada will not pay the compensation. It's either gonna be forced to, to do it legally or it's gonna be forced to do it through public opinion. And I think that's why your voice, uh, Peter, is so important. Mm -hmm. uh, keep asking those questions, keep uh, pressuring uh, all of us to make sure that uh, this compensation process doesn't become an injustice in and of itself. That, uh, you know, that, like, I don't know why we're still waiting, sitting around here yes. in Canada to start doing this. And and frankly, they have, uh, we saw during the pandemic, them turn around the CERB checks so quickly. Yes. So they, they can do it. They've shown us they can do it. And so they can do it for these kids too. And and one mm -hmm. thing that's important for everyone listening is any monies payable to children will go into a trust until they're 18. Uh, oh, so, good. Um, that is really important to know. Yes. And that uh, that that money is for them. It's not for anybody else. It's for that particular child, because we've got to remember they're the ones that were separated from their family or were denied yeah. the service that could have helped them. So uh, it's their money. And, and, you know, just to remind everyone, in case you didn't see the first one, Cindy Blackstock doesn't get a dollar of that money. No. The First Nation Caring Society doesn't get a dollar of that money. So, you know, it's it's important that, you know, from the tribunal side of things that try that compensation goes right to the impacted people and that nobody's getting any cut of that, which could potentially be different under the settlement agreement, because generally settlement agreements have some kind of contingency for for different lawyers but even under the settlement agreement you're not getting any money out of this so you're just you're only in this for the kids yeah there's there's no financial or any other benefit for the caring society and i think this is an important question for everybody to ask everybody yeah um because we want to make sure um that there are uh that everything is clear and transparent and um and, uh, and and for those who are legal beagles on the call, because sometimes you get legal folks, yeah. uh, there's something called the Matson decision uh, on in the Supreme Court of Canada that was decided that said anything under the tribunal you can't get costs for. So uh, that's actually a Supreme Court of Canada decision that uh, that governs that particular idea that nobody under the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal compensation can benefit other than the victims themselves seems to make a whole lot of sense yeah. you know i think even kids could understand well if the kid got hurt then the kid should be the one to get yeah. the exactly 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 <laughs> oh that's good okay so jennifer has a, i guess a similar question she says she's been seeing conflicting information all over facebook some say it's only canada that filed a judicial review and others are saying no afn did too so she wants to know is it true did both canada and the afn file a judicial review and i guess the simple answer to that is yes yeah and yeah. uh you can see those documents uh pam pam and i just quickly scrolled through them yeah and uh, you can see them on fn witness and um uh, it's important just to keep in mind, though, these are the kind of the outline, if you will, of yeah. what they might say later in more detail. And uh, it's always open to 
anyone who brings a judicial review to pull it back. Yeah, yeah exactly. So here's the one from the Assembly of First Nations, and you can get it from the Child and Family Caring Society website. And then, of course, here's the separate one from Canada. And it's often referred to as the Attorney General of Canada. So that's, I mean, we're not going to go through that in detail. We just wanted to make sure that we answered people's questions. Yes, both are filing or have filed judicial reviews. And the federal court website, by the way, you can always get on there. Right. One thing I do is because uh, when you put in something in the federal court, they have to have a record of it and it's open to the public. So you can go on a federal court website and you could type in this case and uh, up would come all the documents that have been filed with the federal court. Yeah, exactly. We're just trying to make it a little bit easy here yeah. for you. Give you a quick glimpse, but everything's available. Um, now, a different Peter wants to thank you, Cindy, for doing this Q&A and says that people in the media were saying that Cindy Blackstock is against the settlement agreement. Can you just speak to that? And I think I heard some of that misinformation in the media, too. Yeah, um, I'm not against the entirety of the settlement agreement. I, I, uh, I congratulate AFN and the other parties on much of it. Uh, what I what I could not agree with is the disentitlement that may happen for First Nations children in care and for other victims, the reductions of those human rights. Yeah. Once we give, we're in the business of affirming human rights, uh, not on taking human rights away. So uh, now that we have that clarification from the tribunal, my hope is that uh, everybody will uh, see this as an opportunity to really yeah. do the right thing for every single child and make sure they're in. Yeah. We basically just put kids first, sit down, work it out, amend that settlement agreement, which has lots of great things in it. And then away we go. We don't have to be in court we go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Away we go. Okay. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So we already answered Celia's question because she asked, is it still true that you're not getting any money from this court case? And yes, that's still true. Bill says he's very frustrated by how all how long all of this is taking. He thought that he would have got the compensation almost three years ago. I'm not sure about the exact timeline, but uh, he wants to know, and I guess he's very frustrated. He wants to know if the compensation will ever be paid out because some of the children who were impacted have passed away. Yeah. And it's really true that, you know, this case has been on for 15 years, Pam, it'll be 15 years. And, and, uh, and we have seen children pass away. Uh, the one good thing in either scenario under the tribunal decision or under this final settlement agreement is that the estates of those children are eligible for compensation. Oh, so that is a difference from uh, the Indian residential schools where we know those children, sacred lies in those unmarked graves, they were never included in any compensation. Hopefully that's going to be fixed too, right? Yeah. Um, but the other thing around parental estates, that is something that's different between the final settlement agreement and the tribunal's orders. The tribunal said if a parent had passed away before during this period of the discrimination and they otherwise would have been entitled if they were alive, they should be compensated. So mm -hmm. that's there. And under the final settlement agreement, my hope is that it's amended to include those people as well, those estates, because uh, we want to see the money uh, for the parental estates go to those children who have lost a parent, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's our goal at the Caring Society. In terms of when is this going to happen, I say, you know, let's press Canada. Yeah. You know, like they are, they have legal orders to pay. They should be paying mm -hmm. uh, instead of filing judicial reviews. Uh, and you know, just do the right thing, obey the orders from the tribunal, and do the right thing. And I, uh, one of the things that I always try to remind folks, because sometimes we feel pretty powerless at a community level, but mm. remember the sea of orange shirts uh, after Malus? Yeah. Well, what Ian Mosby and the amazing Eva Jewell have all educated us in is that the government moved more TRC calls to action in, in six weeks when those orange shirts were being worn than in the previous six years. So we have shown we can get this done. Yeah. Uh, we just need to keep speaking up. and. Uh, that's a really good point. It's true. It's public pressure it's is public. sometimes it's quicker. It's more powerful, more impactful, um, more meaningful than court cases because court cases like, oh, well, now we got to think about what the court case said. And then we have to think about what the interpretation is going to be, see if we're going to amend our policies. But when people are in the streets with their orange shirt saying, stop this with kids, First Nation kids, haven't you done enough? 
Um, I think that that really makes a difference. And that's why I really appreciate your work, Cindy, because the more factual information that Canadians have, the easier it is for them to say, wait a second, this doesn't make sense to us either. We wouldn't want this to happen to our kids. Yeah. And a promise to pay is not paying. I mean, like, I mean, they've been promising to pay for years now as, as your listeners picked up here. And uh, there's not, not one penny has actually reached uh, the victims. And that's, that's really what we need to measure by is when these people who have already gone through so much, too much, at the hands of the government again. Yeah. Receive at least their minimum compensation of the $40,000 and the vital supports that they are entitled to. And well, you can't buy groceries with a promise to pay, right? No, you, you can't can. you can't do any of that. So we've really got to get to the payment yeah. section. And then you can still also deal with all of the other things in the settlement yeah. agreement. It's not either or. It's literally, yeah. let's just get it all done together. Well, and Justice Fable in his decision of, uh, in, in upholding the tribunal decision, he says, look, the, there's nothing stopping. Like you can implement the tribunal's compensation order and you can have a class action. Both of those things can happen at the yeah. same time. Yeah, well, and there you go. And it would be so simple to my mind to amend the agreement. It's just a matter of will. And let's just hope that Canadians can push them to it. Now, these next two questions we've already kind of answered. So Toby wanted to know what was in the Judicial Review by Canada. And we just kind of went over that a little bit. But you can read the documents on the Caring Society website or the the, um, courts. And then Gordon wanted to know what was in the AFN judicial review. And again, we just kind of went over that a little bit and you can get any of those documents online, but I'll make it easy for everyone and put links below so that you can go right to those documents so that you you can read them. Um, yes, and then Leslie asked the same question, wanted to know what, what the AFN put in their judicial review. Uh, oh yes, okay. So someone who wants to remain anonymous asked, why would the AFN side with Canada against the Human Rights Tribunal and the Caring Society. That was during the main trial. Um, I think mm-hmm. that uh, what the hope was is that uh, $20 billion is a lot of money and there mm-hmm. will include more victims than we can compensate under the tribunal order. Um, we heard that at the from AFN and from Canada, both at those hearings. Um, that's all I can say. Oh, yeah, well, because it, it's so hard for us. We can't yeah. put ourselves in the no. minds of Canada no. or the AFN. We can no. surmise, we can wonder, we can kind of try to guess, but, yeah. um, you know, we don't know. That's, I think that's a good question for the AFN yeah. um, or, or Canada about all of this. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay, so Dawn was also here in our last <laughs> session, and she says to say thank you. Um In our last session, we said that not all of the chiefs agree with the settlement agreement between AFN and Canada. And she noted that we put up some resolutions from different chiefs organizations in BC saying the minimum has to be the 40,000 and there has to be free prior and informed consent. So she said, if that's the case, why isn't it happening? Why wouldn't the Assembly of First Nations or Canada or both just put this out to First Nations and ask them for their free prior and informed consent? Well, uh, there's going to be an AFN meeting next week, so we'll see what happens there. And uh, that, of course, is normally live cast, so that's another opportunity for people to watch on their own and see that, uh, see what the what's said about children, youth, and families and other matters that will come mm-hmm. to that important space. So I'd really recommend that that happen. Uh, there are some resolutions, and those are filed with the tribunal that support the FSA, and I would just want to recognize that too, mm-hmm. uh, primarily from the Chiefs of Ontario and Anishinaabe Nation were in support of the final settlement agreement at the hearing before the tribunal. So uh, there are differences of, uh, of opinion, and that that's that is a good thing. You know, yeah. like I think when we're talking about kids, let's bring the uh, all the ideas forward and then let the best ones rise to the top because that's what we want kids to benefit by. Yeah, because ultimately it's for the kids. Yeah. And so if some have reservations or concerns, those are legitimate. Yeah. If some say we don't have any concerns, that's legitimate too. Yeah. I think the idea is just to make a space for people to have their say. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. to and to have the facts underneath it, right? Yeah. Because again, like this is such a long standing case. We've had 23 non-compliance and procedure orders against Canada since 2016. 
uh, it is so much to keep track of. And what I worry about is uh, leadership had so much to do during the pandemic. And so much was happening in this case during the mm. pandemic. We were actually having, we were actually doing hearings virtually during the pandemic. So a lot of this stuff piled up and then people are coming out of it a little bit. And I just want to say that we're still in the middle of it. So follow your public health advice. Yeah. Yes, please. Don't want to see anything go sideways at, now. Um, that people are just getting caught up on the information. And so I would just want to make sure that people have the availability to the documents, some of which you're seeing here on that website, mm -hmm. FN Witness, by the way, you can go way back and see yeah. every single court document. So uh, we just want to make sure that people have a chance to catch your breath, see all the information and be able to make the best decision for their kids. Yeah. And I, I've been saying that too. So I get obviously tons of questions and I'm sure you do um, about whether you know, oh, it's my First Nations chief who hasn't done anything about this or whatever. And it's like, just just remember, this is like one issue. There's also murdered and missing Indigenous women. There's fires on reserve. There's lack of water. There's, you know, incarceration, like, and COVID just turned everything on its head. So a lot of us aren't up to date on everything that's happening. Sometimes people ask me, hey, what's the up to date on this issue? And I'm like, oh, gosh, I haven't even, it's impossible you yeah. know, sometimes. So I think this kind of public education that can be shared over social media, and then you can have community meetings or family meetings and talk about it. I think that's really important. Um, and a related question I got from Randy says that, is it only First Nations chiefs that get to decide what happens in the settlement agreement? And he says, because First Nations people who live off reserve sometimes go back and forth. Sometimes they were living on reserve with their kids and they were impacted by foster care and sometimes they moved off reserve. So who is capturing all of those people? Uh, Randy, first of all, thank you for your question. So, so important. I mean, there's so many First Nations where there's such a housing crisis, mm -hmm. right? You can't live on reserve. Or there's families who are doing exactly what Randy's talking about. You know, there could be uh, service needs that they have. They could have family off reserve. They could be going for employment, education, all kinds of stuff. The key thing on this, um, on the final settlement agreement and on the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal thing is that it's Canada's discrimination that is uh, at issue here. So it was the federal government's discrimination through Jordan's principle or CFS. Was that the harm that was happening? If so, then that's probably caught up in this um, dialogue that we're having right now. There are other class actions proceeding for children off reserve who are removed by provincial child welfare authorities. So keep your eye on that. That's really important. They're at earlier stages. There are, to my knowledge, no court orders saying that anyone needs to get paid right now, but... Um, they're out there. And in terms of people having their say, I'm not a class action lawyer, but my understanding of the proceedings is uh, that there are things uh, like uh, hearings that happen before the federal court uh, that where victims actually can come forward and have their say and say, you know, I really support this deal or I like some parts of it, but I have some serious questions about other parts or I, I don't support it you as a victim actually have those rights to make those representations at the federal court. And uh, that type of hearing actually uh, was scheduled for early September um, in federal court, but it's been put off now because uh, the tribunal made the decision that it made. So uh, folks should be uh, asking their leadership about when that is, uh, agreement hearing will go forward and uh, talk to uh, you know legal counsel in your area about how you could have your voice heard at that particular hearing. I was going to say that um, I didn't even know that there was pending class action for off-reserve people, which I think is fantastic news because yeah. we want to make sure that nobody's excluded who's yeah. been harmed in all of this. But that just goes to show how hard it is to be up to date on everything that's happening with everything, including law and policy and everything else. So uh, thanks for raising that because it's something that I definitely want to follow. Um, now, Gloria asked a similar question, and I think we got this question at the last session. Mm -hmm. She's basically saying the same thing as Randy. What about women 
and mothers and single mothers, she says that the majority of families impacted by child and family services um, is single mothers. They often head these households by themselves. Will women have a particular say or input into this? And I think that's a good question. It is a good question. And um, you might remember from the Indian residential schools uh, settlement that there were a bunch of information sessions going around to advise victims, having dialogues with victims yeah. about what was in that settlement agreement. And uh, that hasn't happened in this particular area. And I, I, I'm really hoping that a similar process will be adopted in advance of that uh, official hearing I was talking about in federal court, mm -hmm. um, because not all of us uh, can you know, hire a lawyer and get there to federal court and deal with it in those spaces. But uh, and particularly because we're dealing with children here, I see real value in having community based safe spaces and not just one space, but different types mm -hmm. of spaces so that different people with different comfort levels could come forward and have a conversation and say, this is what the, I need to be heard on this point, or I have questions on this point, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we improve things? I've got some ideas that would be actually do be uh, really important for you to think about. Um, all of that, I'm hoping will happen as part of mm -hmm. this opportunity the tribunals presented us, which is to actually, you know, do even better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to have independent people there. Yeah. So these kind of community information sessions happen all the time when it's a elections or land surrenders or designations and leases under the Indian Act. There's processes, there's ways like we already have that in place in First Nations. Um, and now because of court cases, they have often they have that in places for off reserve. So, for example, if a First Nation knows that there's three main cities where all of their people go to work or go to school, then they have processes there to make sure that it's safe or accommodate individuals and things like that. So I think that would be super, super important. And whatever supports are necessary, because think yeah. of what some people are dealing with. Yeah. Some people not only dealt with residential school settlement, but they may also have been impacted by the 60 scoop, maybe lost their kids. And then their other kids may have been impacted by the foster care system. And then, you know, there's murder to missing. There's so much going on right now for people. I, I, and I feel like some people just have multiple overlapping layers that we have to be very careful. Yeah. That we're as many supports as possible and as much accommodation as possible. Not everyone's going to be in a place where they can go to a community meeting, even travel health wise, for example. So I and think that's going to be important an awesome uh, resource in that regard uh, that was filed with the tribunal, but I want to give a shout out to the Assembly of Seven Generations. Not this, That's not the Assembly of First yeah. It's the Assembly of Seven Generations, which is a youth group. They're known as A7G. And they did a fabulous report uh, talking about what those types of supports look like. And they're not just flash in the pan while you're at the session. Mm -hmm. It has to be in the, available to persons before they get involved during that time and really important after because sometimes i don't know about you Pam, but when there's something that's really been happening in your life that's had a, a pretty a pretty sacred but negative impact um you think you're going to be okay mm. and then you get there and um it has more of an impact than maybe what you thought and so that after support is so important Yes, the, I like the fact that you're saying it's like on an ongoing basis, you know, yeah. so that it's not just one and done. I think that's important. Um, Cindy, there's been a ton of questions that have been sent. And basically, I asked the ones that weren't repeats, like a lot of people ask the same questions, like some, there's like a million questions on one particular issue, especially around did the AFN really follow judicial review? So like I said, go to those documents, uh, read them. But I want to make sure that A, we didn't miss anything that you wanted to cover and B, that we go through some of these comments and see if there's any questions that we haven't already answered. Um, I see the First Nation Caring Society joined us and they're saying that we can go to your website and get all of this information. Yeah. So that's fantastic. I also posted the link to the Caring Society. Um, yeah, why would AFN join the judicial review process? Again, that seems to be like the, the number one question here. Um, and I think we talked about that a little bit. And then another question is, how can the AFN bind First Nation communities and members? I'm assuming to the settlement. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to, if you want to 
tackle that one. That's kind of more of a political question, I think. Uh, and I don't know enough about the AFN, the way it's organized. I mean, I can tell you just as a general rule in this case, what we've done is we've gone back when we're not, not every day. Like, I mean, there's so much happening, but when there's been key decision-making points, we've mm -hmm. always gone back to the, the chiefs in assembly and said, here's what's happening. And we really need, need to hear your views about where the next steps are. And uh, that has been an important touch uh, touchstone in this entire process. And so I'm looking forward to that happening again in the future, mm -hmm. uh, provide guidance because, you know, we're talking about compensation today, which is the hurt that was happening in the past. And one of the things you were talking about is, well, what else is there out there that we need to clarify? Well, one of the things that I found kind of surprising were headlines like $40 billion deal tanked. I was like, oh. $40 billion? What? <laughs> what? Um, so when we hear $40 billion, to be clear, $20 billion is for the compensation, of which the, the parliamentary budget officer said $15 billion of that is up to as much as $15 billion is for the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal mm -hmm. compensation alone. So uh, that's subject to legal orders. Canada can't just whisk that away because no. it doesn't want to. They have to deal with those legal orders. Then we have, um, which is close to my heart, which is stopping the discrimination and making sure children never experience it again. Yeah. And um, there, you'll everyone will remember the $19.8 billion the Fed said they put to that over five years. Um, and then we saw the headline, well, is that at risk? Is all this prevention money that's finally flowing to communities at risk? Uh, the answer to that is Canada agrees that 75% of that is already dealt with under Canadian Human Rights Tribunal orders. It wasn't something they were giving us. It was something they were ordered to provide. Yeah. Um, and there are legal orders safeguarding that. There is additional monies uh, for remoteness and for other types of services uh, over the five years that I think all of us should be pressing Canada to release right now because mm -hmm. there are kids in need. And uh, it shouldn't be we're going to hold back on this money until you do something. It should be yeah. we have children and needs. Let's just meet those needs. That's what Jordan's principle is all about. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other big question for us is what happens in year six and beyond, though? Uh, like that, that for me is a big question. This $19.8 billion is a lot of money, uh, but it's a, for five years. And I want to make mm -hmm. sure uh, that any child, in year six, in year 16, in year 26, are not having to litigate to try and grow up with their families and get the same types of supports. I mean, we this has got to be the last time. And uh, we have a path of success to get there, um, but we need to make sure that we do not drop the ball. I always am mindful of the old teaching that the, you're most likely to lose just before you win. So yeah. let's keep in mind those children uh, and the obligation that the survivors gave us in the TRC. Make sure the discrimination stops, not just for five years, but for the long run. That's what we need to do. Oh, my gosh. I think for all of this, there is, a, a, you know, as much as, you know, changing laws and changing policies and doing compensation and memorials and things like that, it's also... I think maybe first and foremost to actually stop it, like stop, stop it, it stop. in the here and stop the racism, the violence, the discrimination, like stop that. Cause that's the most urgent. That is. And, you know, sometimes we get, we talk so much about the, the past stuff yeah. and it really is. I think this is our, our most important work is, is getting them to stop it. And uh, I never want to see another first nations child compensated for a, a childhood where Canada hurt them or any government hurt them. I mean, this compensation represents another failure, another yeah. choice by the government of Canada and other governments to hurt First Nations kids. Uh, so I'd, I'd be very happy in a future where the kids and families and nations are set up for success for healthy, happy kids, and no one gets compensated because there are no victims. Thank you listeners and viewers for taking the time to listen and learn more about all of these litigation tactics by both Canada and unfortunately the Assembly of First Nations and what it could do to First Nation kids who already won a compensation order but now that compensation order is at risk because of these judicial reviews filed by Canada and the AFN. I'll post the first live Q&A so you can get the background if you missed that one. 
please share this podcast far and wide to help others sort out fact from fiction and rumors. It's only fair for grassroots people who are usually the last to know about these things actually get information to what's happening because sometimes our own organizations don't help ensure that information goes to the communities. I'll also post a link to the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society where you can read all of the documents submitted by all of the parties in all of the court processes and there's also excellent resources on how you can support our kids. She even has seven free ways that you can help kids. Don't forget to support Indigenous content creators through Patreon, Buy Me A Coffee, the Ko-fi app, subscriptions, and all the other free ways to support podcasts. Keep living a warrior life, Willalia.